trigger warning. This podcast is about grief. Whether you are newly bereaved or whether you have been stuck in grief for years, I do hope this podcast brings you some comfort. Grief is such a universal experience, but we all do it differently. This podcast is not about fixing you or forcing the healing process because there is no cure for grief. It can only be absorbed, experienced, loved and cared for. So whether you are doing it privately behind closed doors or like me, you are kicking and screaming your way through, let's support each other. This is a safe space where we can come together and share experiences. My hope is that this podcast shines a light on your path and gives you the strength to navigate your way through the grieving process. My name is Louise Bates and I'm so pleased we connected. I'm looking forward to interviewing people who have also walked this path to find out what worked for them in the hope that it helps you too. I'm sending you so much love and support and I look forward to sharing this crazy journey with you. Hello and welcome to today's episode of A Gift for Grief. Before I introduce my guest, I feel I need to preface this episode with another trigger warning. We will be talking about suicide and bereavement by suicide. Now, this can be a very emotive subject, so if you feel this may be too difficult for you to listen to, please feel free to listen to a different episode. There are links in the show notes to various organisations if you feel you need to talk to somebody afterwards. You will also find links to other topics we discussed today. Now, there's a vast difference between normal death and death by suicide. And today, I have the privilege of hosting a guest who has personally experienced the tragic loss of her son, Iggy, at the tender age of 15, to suicide. Now, without further ado, I would like to introduce you to my awesome guest, Charlie Hart. Charlie, welcome and thank you for being a guest on my podcast. Thanks, Louise, and thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, when I asked you, Charlie, if you would like to be a guest on my podcast, I have to admit I was slightly nervous because talking about grief and loss generally can be difficult. And your experience of losing your son is so traumatic I wasn't sure you would want to share your story. But you've reassured me that you find talking about it very cathartic and I'm so grateful you said yes. So a very, very warm welcome to you. (laughs) Now, I've mentioned to maybe half a dozen people that was hosting this episode and the look on their faces spoke volumes. I was met with worried looks and questioned why I would want to do this. Are you sure that's a good idea? And I did question myself for about a minute and then thought, damn right I want to talk about this. We need to break down the stigma and support those who are struggling with bereavement by suicide. Society needs to hear these conversations. We need to be more grief literate. If people find this topic too difficult, I understand and they can turn it off. It's not my intention to upset anyone. Now, we first connected through my Facebook bereavement group, Letters to Matthew. And today is the first time we have physically met each other. But I feel like we have a deep connection because we both lost a child. Do you feel that too? I do, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I read your book quite a while ago because our mutual friend, Bob Brooker, thought of me when he read it and gave me a copy. Yes, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I feel like we belong to this weird club that nobody wants to belong to. Yeah. Now, before we talk about your son, Iggy, I would love to talk a little bit about the work you do. You are an advocate for neurodiversity and I find your Facebook posts and videos fascinating and it's been a real education getting to know you. You are so knowledgeable and passionate about this subject. So perhaps we could start with a little introduction to the work you do in this fascinating world of neurodiversity. Sure. So my long-term career background has been in HR, in the technical side of HR. And then I discovered in 2018, when I was uh, 42 years old, that I am autistic. And I found that out because 
Iggy at the time was going through quite a lot of anxiety and he saw a child psychologist who talked to him about his anxiety and identified that the underlying cause of that was autism. And as she was talking, more and more pennies dropped and I realised mm. that it was un the underlying cause of some of the issues that I've had throughout my life. So when I became diagnosed autistic, I then discovered actually autistic Twitter where people talk about their first-hand experiences of autism and then discovered neurodiversity. And basically that's a concept. It's short for neurological diversity and it recognises that all humans, all every human brain is unique and different with its own strengths and challenges. Some brains have things uh, in common like uh, autistic brains and ADHD brains, but every individual is wired differently and that, that, that's a strength for humanity yes, and not a deficit. Absolutely. So different neurotypes include ADHD, autism, dyspraxia, dyslexia, Asperger's, Tourette's syndrome. There's quite a long list, isn't there? Yes. And these examples of neurodiverse conditions help us understand how differently some people think, learn, process and behave. Yeah? Absolutely. But yeah. we also need to recognise that they rarely exist alone. So yeah. mental health conditions often manifest with these as well. And they're also, if you're an anxious person, you're also neurodivergent. Yes. And quite often you might have more than one neurotype or neurological difference. Yeah. So it's really, you can't pigeonhole people because we're all... Uh, we're all a collection of uh, our experiences and our, our wiring. Yeah, absolutely. I have a basic understanding of this as my daughter was diagnosed back in the day when it was called specific learning disability. Has the language around this description changed now? Is it's it... constantly changing. Yeah. So my, my brother is autistic and ADHD with learning difficulties. Yeah. And he was called mentally handicapped when <gasps> we were growing oh, that's up. Unbelievable I find that really stigmatising. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But once uh, he was quite difficult to diagnose, I think, because he didn't neatly fit into any pigeonhole. No. So it was difficult to place him in an appropriate school for his needs yeah. but once we understood that he was autistic it, it, we didn't call him mentally handicapped as, no. as such then thank god it's changed as yeah. well um so our daughter piper she, on the, she, we paid for her to have a, a psychological assessment when she was about 11 because she was starting to struggle socially and the teachers were worried about her coordination and things like that. So she had lots of little things. So she was dyslexic, dyspraxic, slightly Asperger's. So, But she hasn't got one thing really big, but she's got lots of little things. Yes. So I can understand what you're saying. And I would love to do some extra training in this area because as a therapist, I understand how important it is to connect to my clients. I need to build rapport. And they need to feel safe and trust me. So if I can understand the different neurotypes, not only will it make me a better person, it will make me a better therapist too. So I would like to do some more training in this area. Is this something you've thought about offering? Definitely, yes. Oh. Yeah, although I can teach theory and uh, employment legislation and things like that because people need to know how to navigate the workplace without discrimination. Yes. But uh, but also it's really important to understand that everyone's experience is unique. Yes. So, yeah. for example, I'm autistic. People might make an assumption that I live off chicken nuggets and fries because some autistic <gasps> kids do. Yeah. But actually, I like all types of food and I have a really varied palate because I'm also a sensory seeker. So I'm constantly looking for new things, new experiences that are uh, tingly on my palate. And yeah. and yeah, I'm not into bland food at all. You are an amazing advocate for this. So we need to talk about training after this podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about your son, Iggy, and what life was like for you and your family before he died? Yes. So uh, all of our kids are somewhere on the spectrum, you could say. But uh, between my husband, Si, and I, we had four kids. So two boys and two girls. Yeah. And... Uh, all of them autistic, 
but not diagnosed at the time. Sai's uh, child was diagnosed autistic age six. And I think we assumed that the others were neurotypical. Yeah. Although that we didn't know about that language until I discovered neurodiversity. Yeah. I'm a bit all over the place here. But yeah, when, uh, when Iggy was in middle school, he uh, started to have a lot of problems with friendship groups. Yeah. And uh, and also bullying. So some of the kids would call him weird and treat him like he'd got some kind of uh, infectious disease and run away from him. Yeah. So that started to really dent his self-confidence. And when he got into high school, he started to have quite serious anxiety attacks. But he was always really happy and really into things you know he was really enthusiastic about cars built up a lot of uh, information about cars in his mind and if if anyone wanted to buy a new car he would uh, interview them about what they were looking for in a car and he'd be searching auto trader um, trying to match them to their ideal car um, planning to do a degree in mechanical engineering because he wanted to make a living out of his yeah. passion. And he was really interested in uh, Marvel and superhero films and things as well, and action adventures. Very, very enthusiastic. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, school is like a war zone, isn't it, for some children? Yeah. And if you're not the average, you're not the brightest, you're not the, you know, the most, most popular, it is a war zone. But the adult world is a lot more forgiving, I think, isn't it? Possibly, although I could talk about uh, what it's like to be autistic in a conventional workplace quite a lot as well. Yes, yeah. But school to me, I I mean, I was bullied, but I just tried to rationalise it and think, okay, yeah, they're calling me weird and different. I am. I don't really have a problem with that. I wouldn't want to be like everybody else. No. But some kids can't rationalize it like that and they do feel it as a rejection so it will hit some kids harder than others and it it, a lot of it's to do with the self-esteem and I try to raise my kids with good self-esteem I try to tell them how awesome they are yes yeah and admire their good qualities yeah absolutely sometimes it's not enough because society, you're not with them 24-7, are you? They no. still have to go out into the real world, and it's cool. Yeah. It's a cool world out there. Now, Iggy, you say, wanted to be a mechanical engineer, and he was even planning his work experience with a car mechanic. Yes. He was planning his future. Yeah. So how do you begin to process the shock of his death and how he died? It's a really complicated story, actually, because when he died... It looked like it was an accident at first. So we thought that he'd done something that was a bit reckless and and risky behaviour and that it had tragically led to his death. So when we began processing, uh, processing and coming to terms with that and finding understanding and acceptance, we were doing that on the basis that that it was a tragic accident. Yeah. And in the coroner's inquest, I was there saying, yes, he was looking forward to the future, training for his Duke of Edinburgh expedition, uh, nagging me to buy him a a tool to polish um, the stones that he collected on our walks. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Filling in the forms for his work experience, looking forward to Avengers Endgame coming out, all all kinds of forward-looking things. And although he knew he was autistic and he struggled with anxiety around that, we thought that he was happy in himself. So there's me in an inquest telling the coroner this. The, The coroner looked at the information from the police and listened to what I had to say and ruled that it was uh, probable that what he did was deliberate, but the fact that it led to a death, to his death, was an accident. Okay. So we had a verdict of accidental death. And 
told all friends and family this as well. Yeah. And then a week later, um, got the his laptop and phone back from the police. Yeah. Because they didn't need it anymore after the inquest. And my husband found that he Iggy had actually videoed his own death. My husband found that on uh, on the memory card on the phone, which the police didn't even look at. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They couldn't boot up the phone. The phone had... Uh, the battery had died and the phone had crashed and wouldn't boot up. Yeah. But they didn't think to look at the memory card. What a so, beautiful shock. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd gone through... Like a journey, uh, yeah. it's not a linear A to B journey um, going through grief and bereavement, as you all fully know. Yeah. There's uh, there's some backward steps and there's, there's some meanders and side quests. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a... No, you could be a spider dipped in ink put on a map as far as I'm concerned, but we'd started yeah. on this journey. Iggy died in, August, in, in April and the inquest was in August. Yeah. And in August, we found out from my husband watching a video that he had done it deliberately. It was very clear. So we had to start again, really. Yes, yeah. Not only understanding again that what he'd done was deliberate and trying to understand why, but we also had to tell friends and family what we told you wasn't actually what happened. Yeah. At that time, I went to... The, I found the Survivors of Bereavement through Suicide Group, which is a national support group with okay. local meetings. And I went to that, told this story there. And it was really eye-opening because there were about 20 people in this support group all telling their stories and... The thing that linked all the stories is that uh, none of those people were expecting, none of them thought that their loved one was at risk of suicide. No. Every single case, it was a bolt out of the blue. Apart from there was one. There was one mother whose adult son had had been in a mental institution. Yeah. He'd gone through a really bad time because his wife had divorced him and, and uh, stopped him from seeing the kids and... So that was not unanticipated, but all the others were bolts from the blue. Yeah. I can't imagine, Charlie, what you've been through. And I'm so grateful that you're here and able to share your story because there will be people listening that are going to take something from this. And I understand with any sudden death, the police have to be involved and there's a process that they have to go through. But... Have they learned any lessons? Because it's such a delicate operation. Yes. You know, how can they make such big mistakes? Yeah, I'm sure they have. I can't believe what you've, you know, what you've explained to me. I had no idea that this backstory was behind, you know, your tragedy. I haven't talked a lot about it because I was worried about press intrusion at the time. Yes, yeah. The police, uh, the the sergeant, the uh, what do they call them? The DI. They came to our house two or three times to try and explain what had happened and and apologise. Yeah. And yeah, I I can understand what happened, and I do believe that they will learn from it and be yeah. more thorough in future. Yeah. But I think they were just thrown by the fact that the phone wouldn't boot up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately, there's still a stigma around suicide. People don't like to talk about grief generally, um, but suicide has its own footprint in terms of how society, different religions, various belief systems view death by suicide. And they're quite unhelpful attitudes, aren't they? Did you find this? Yes. Um, Not from my immediate group of friends, family, colleagues, but... uh, on social media, because I'm a neurodiversity advocate, I do overshare quite a lot on social media. Yeah. I'm a great believer in storytelling, which yes. is one of the reasons that I'm here talking to you today. I think that 
humanity as this thing that we need to understand. We need to understand different people's experiences. And uh, it's really powerful if we relate to those experiences because then we don't feel alone. So on LinkedIn, which is meant to be a professional social media platform, but I talk a bit there about being autistic and also about being bereaved. Yeah. On the one of the anniversaries of Iggy's death, I shared there uh, on LinkedIn um, my charity, my charity web page about Iggy and about how his legacy is trying to promote understanding and acceptance of autistic people who are LGBT. And I shared that and said that it was uh, the anniversary of his death and it got a million hits worldwide. And I was quite freaked out by some of the comments. Some people, and a bit of context here, I, I don't believe in God, I am an atheist. Yeah. But some people were in the comments saying things like, I'll pray for his soul, which made me feel mm. like they think he's gone to hell, yeah. <laughs> which I don't believe in, no. but I still found that really offensive and Absolutely. really inappropriate. Yeah. And some of the comments were implying that he'd committed some kind of crime or sin, and I wasn't expecting that at all. I've seen around the same time other autistic teenagers that had taken their own lives where the stories had ended up in the tabloid media. And a lot of what I saw was parent blaming. Right. And that's why I didn't want to talk to the press at the time. Understandably, I'd seen, yeah. Oh, yeah, if this child had been able to talk to their parents, if they were adequately supported, if their parents had advocated for their needs. Yeah. And obviously, I am, I am an advocate. <laughs> it's what I do all the time. Yeah, yeah. And he did open up to me a lot about his struggles, but it doesn't stop people from making assumptions that the child wasn't adequately supported. Yeah. But on LinkedIn, they were blaming him, which is even worse and, and really took me by surprise. I completely freaked out and deleted the whole post that had a million hits. Yeah, it's so upsetting to hear that. You know, what goes through people's minds when they're typing this into the keyboard? Yeah. It is really upsetting isn't it to think there's people like that out there let's yeah. hope that this podcast is going to reach these people they actually meant well as well i think they actually thought i would want to hear they were praying for his uh, eternal salvation so do you think that their intentions were good can you yeah. take some comfort from that yeah maybe yeah yeah but it doesn't land it's good does offensive it, to it me. is yeah yes. yeah now this must have all complicated your grief the fact that you know you thought it was death by misadventure and then you found out that it was suicide and then with social media and the comments you know I think it's important to mention that there are many types of grief including traumatic grief which I'm sure you certainly experienced yes but many people are not aware of disenfranchised grief which is a very much a feature when you lose a loved one by suicide and that can be because of the stigma and lack of societal recognition or support. You may feel that society isn't accepting death by suicide. And this makes it difficult for people to openly mourn their loss. And this complicates the grieving process. So I imagine you've had a mixed bag of different types of grief to contend with, which you're probably still processing. Do you feel this? I do. I I think, though, that... The biggest thing that complicates my grief journey is that I'm autistic. And this is another thing that's really important for therapists to learn about. Yeah. Quite often, autistic people have a condition called alexithemia. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. (laughs) And every therapist should know about this. Absolutely. Yeah. it, It basically means you're not in touch with your feelings you struggle to identify and and name your feelings so it can come across like uh, we don't care yeah <laughs> or that our feelings are blunted and that we've put up a lot of walls but it isn't a conscious thing yeah it works in my favor sometimes because it does mean that i can talk about uh, bereavement and grief yeah. And losing my child. I can talk about it in podcasts and, and meetings and and to friends and I can get the words out. Imagine a, 
imagine a, a, an ocean that looks completely still on the surface, but underneath there's a tsunami brewing. Yeah. Yeah. And then later on it hits. There's a deluge of feelings. That's what it's like with alexithemia. Yeah. So it's the still waters run deep. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because over the years, you know, I've had clients that have come to me with issues. I do this tapping therapy, this EFT, emotional freedom technique. And it is about connecting to your feelings and negative feelings, heavy, heavy feelings and releasing them and letting them go. So for people that find it difficult to connect to their feelings, I would always say to them, how do you know this is a problem? I, I would have to find a way of working out differently. Yes. So I'm so up for doing your training because it is going to help me so much. To you Fabulous. know, Yeah, absolutely. I had psychodynamic therapy before Iggy died actually yeah. I was processing another loss because I had two two miscarriages both of which were missed miscarriages yeah. with traumatic procedures in hospital three months apart okay. and that's why I had a five-year age gap between Iggy and his sister Izzy yeah because I, I had I went through that and then it affected me so badly. I was on antidepressants for a while, so yes. I didn't try to conceive. Yeah. But psychodynamic therapy, the therapist I had, she taught me how to notice the signs in my body, the physical signs, like yeah. my um, my breath um, quickening or my heart racing, tingly feelings. She would stop me and say, just stop talking a minute and just be aware of what's going on in your body. Did you find <laughs> that helpful? It was extremely helpful, yeah. 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 I've gone back to Worcestershire Healthy Minds and said, can I please, please uh, have more therapy from that particular therapist? But yeah. it doesn't work like that. When no. when you go through NHS um, therapy services, yeah. you're just on a waiting list and you get what you're given. It unfortunately is, isn't so it? So I have gone back to them and I have had counselling, but it was very, very generic. Yeah. yeah. And... Sometimes I find that uh, I know that my experiences are atypical and that the way that I process things isn't like everybody else. But then uh, that can sometimes get diminished by a counsellor or or a therapist that reassures me that everyone feels things differently. And that uh, classic grief curve, it's never a neat curve for anyone and it's always a tangled mess for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. but I I really feel like they need to listen a little bit more closely to how, no, it really is very different for me because I'm autistic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So did you find a lot of awkwardness around you in the early days or did you feel supported? I always felt supported, Good. Yeah, uh, especially by close friends and family. Yeah. And what was awkward is uh, acquaintances and friends that weren't so close because they'd never know what to say. Yeah. So I put myself out there and still did the school runs, still took my daughters to school and back and went into the office after a brief period of time off. Yeah. And... Yeah, it was the people that didn't know me that well that they really struggled with knowing what to say. Yeah. And I, a couple of friends crossed the road to avoid me. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I think we've all experienced that. I That happened to me on the parade in Leamington. And again, in Sainsbury, somebody came into the aisle, saw me, and then the head went down and yeah. they disappeared. And I'm yeah. like, and you feel that, don't you? Yeah, it, I, it goes I, deep. I understand it, though, because yeah. I understand social awkwardness because I am socially awkward myself. And... <laughs> But, yeah, it can hurt. I had one friend that walked past me and blanked me a couple of times, and then the third time she walked past me, she just put her hand out and and just pressed her hand on my shoulder and gave me a knowing look. And and that was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's very comforting, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So what words would you choose to say to pass on your condolences to somebody grieving? If you got like the magic word, because it's so hard to get it right, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I really don't know because it depends on the individual. But yeah. I'm so sorry is what I tend to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think anything... Even if it sounds clumsy, it's better than saying nothing. Yeah. 
sometimes, you know, people can say something like, I used to hate it when people said, there's always a reason. Oh, yeah. No, there isn't. <laughs> there is, there is, yeah. Uh, I think there is a reason um, when you lose somebody to suicide that is bullied at school. Yes. There is a reason. Well, then, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I try to do is... Uh, just little baby steps towards trying to make society more inclusive and more accepting of human differences. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, people say different things and they don't always land well, but what's important is to read the intention yes. rather than the words. So if I have a religious friend that says God's looking after your child in heaven, I'm not going to react badly to that because if they believe that, yeah, that's okay. They mean well by saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will pray for your son's uh, heavenly salvation. Though that I find I find that offensive, but yeah. it's better to say anything than than blank somebody yeah. that's already they've already lost a loved one. They don't want to lose their friends as well. Absolutely. I mean, I remember somebody saying to me when they found out that Matthew died through kidney cancer. That oh, my dad, my cat died of kidney mm. cancer. I was like, oh, well, that's a conversation killer, isn't it? It's not really <laughs> yeah. letting me open up about what, I, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, that person was just wanting to connect with yeah. me on some level. So their intentions Absolutely. were good. That's so, yeah. a really autistic thing as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite common when, when you're autistic and somebody shares something they've been through that yeah. you share a similar thing you've been through. Yes, and yeah. neurotypicals can find that rude and self-centred. Yeah. But actually it's something autistic people do to relate to each other and connect. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. So our losses are very different. But what we do share is the pain, yeah. the emotions that come with losing a child. But how would you describe your grief to somebody who has never had a significant loss? It's really difficult because it's when Iggy died, he stopped he stopped being tormented by bullies and I just remember him as being 15. Yes. So I tried not to well, I don't even try, it's not a conscious thing. I don't I don't um, dwell on the tragedy of his loss and I look back with nostalgia. So yeah. it's like he's still with me. You know, I've got his picture on the wall swinging on a rope swing uh, yeah. above the canal on one of our DV training walks. And it's almost like he's there with us watching programme. Yeah. Um, if there's a TV series where it's a show he really liked and they really, uh, there's another series coming out, I kind of think that he's still watching us with yeah watching us it with us. That's 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 beautiful. Yeah. That's lovely. Um, but what uh, what's been really hard for me is the trauma. So it isn't just about bereavement and loss and grief and not having my child grow up with me. It's also that the circumstances around his death and how I found out about it yeah and uh yeah um it's they were actually major traumas absolutely so I have got complex PTSD yeah. and I already had it but it had been treated yes. with psychodynamic therapy and and now I have it again and it's that is something that's going to be be with me forever, I think. And it yeah. has a significant impact on my life. It's one of the reasons that I've quit my day job in HR yeah. to go self-employed. I need a lot of self-care and I need to be able to look after myself and, and take as much time as I need if I hit a trigger. Yeah. And people think that things like birthdays and anniversaries are hard. They're not. <laughs> yeah, that's a real misconception yeah. to me. When Iggy's birthday's coming up, I plan for it. I I decide something like I might be painting some rocks and scattering them around, like yeah. life-affirming rocks. Um, I might be uh, going on a long walk to retrace the steps of one of my walks with him. Yeah. I've got a near-photographic memory and a really detailed autobiographical memory, so I can retrace the steps and, and play back the conversations. So this is something I really enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. brings me comfort. 
What uh, what I can't cope with is the unexpected triggers that hit me like a truck. I, you know, I get, I can be fine and going about my life, and then see some kids in in the DV training expedition. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or see kids getting off the the bus in the same uniform that he wore. Yeah. And things like that are harder for me to bounce back from. Yeah, because we don't see them coming, do no. we? And they're, um, you know, it can prepared. be a song on the radio. It can be, it can be a smell. It can be all sorts of yeah. different experiences. And then it's like bang, it's there back in your face again. And it's yeah. that rawness of grief. And sometimes I'm six years down the line from losing Matthew, and sometimes I still get, oh my god, that really happened to our family. And, you know, I'll probably always feel like this. You, you know, we're going to carry this grief with us for the rest of our lives. And I don't want, in a way, to let my experience of grief go. Yes. Do you feel like that's something you'll always... To me, the grief is... The, the word grief is a heavy word. But for me, it's love. Yes. It's the love that I have for Matthew. It doesn't stop because he died. I still carry that. It's just called grief now. That's really relatable to me. Yeah, I Iggy's with me and I love him. Yeah, and yeah. I don't identify as a bereaved parent. It's not a. I didn't choose it, and it's yeah. yeah I don't talk about it usually, but uh, yeah, it's it is love, yeah. uh, and he's still with me, and he always will be. Uh, but the trauma and the triggers are. A lot harder to shape. Yes, yeah. And different people react to things in really different ways. So maybe there's somebody out there listening to this who thinks I must be some kind of cold-hearted, callous person because I've lost someone I loved and I don't wake up and think about them as soon as I, I open my eyes every day. Sometimes I'm getting on with my life and they might feel a bit of a martyr about that. But I I need to actively decide I'm going to sit with this and reflect and think about Iggy. Yeah. I I can I can uh, compartmentalize it and get on with other stuff. Yeah. It's really hard to do that at first. And particularly with the visual flashbacks as well. It was a mistake to go and see Iggy in the Chapel of Rest because I have a photographic memory. So I went through a phase where I would wake up in the morning and picture him lying there in the Chapel of Rest, um, which was a really bad idea. But you wouldn't have known that. If you hadn't done it, you might be going, oh, I wished I'd gone. It's really hard to know what to do, isn't it? My my husband, Si, when his dad died, and that was... That was sudden. It was a heart uh, a heart condition, and yeah. he was only in his fifties. Sai struggled to feel anything. Went to see his dad in the chapel of rest, and and that's when he started to feel the feelings. So he uh. thought it would help me, <laughs> but he doesn't have the mind's eye because some people do and some don't. Yeah, I can picture things in vivid detail in my mind. Other people have got no mind's eye. That, there's a word for that um, aphantasia I think it yes is. yeah yeah so Sai Sai doesn't have that mind's eye and <laughs> yeah yeah I'm a very visual person I can visualize things quite easily and I, like you I remember certain things they they just never fade images yeah. that just don't fade and that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing as yeah. well, can't it? It's a gift and a curse it for me. My photographic is. memory. It makes me really good at my job. It yeah. makes me really prone to PTSD. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, Charlie, can you recommend any books or films or podcasts or groups or anything that can, you know, you can recommend to help other people out there that are going through a bereavement? Yes. Uh, This is a bit unconventional, probably, but uh, there's a series on Netflix, which is a dark comedy called Dead to Me. And it's about a woman who lost her husband. But when I felt with my alexithemia in the early days, when I felt like I was being cold hearted and not feeling the feelings enough, I used to watch that. And the 
floodgates would open. Wow. It was a comedy, though. Yeah. <laughs> a comedy with sad bits, but that's how I work. I'm a very tragic comic kind of person, and my gallows humour shocks a lot of people yeah, yeah. at times. But to me, that really worked. It made me laugh. It made me smile. It made me cry. It made me feel all the feelings. And then that was really cathartic, and I felt a lot more human and a lot more in touch with my feelings. Yeah, yeah, I've not heard of that. I'll have to check it out, and I'll pop that in the show notes yeah. as well. So where are you and your family now in your grief journey? How are you getting on? The biggest challenge now is worrying about our daughters because they're autistic as well, yeah. and one of them's in high school. The other's uh, going to be in high school in a couple of years. Uh, like Iggy, they're both autistic and LGBT. And unlike Iggy, they they wear their LGBT status as a badge of pride. Yes. And they think it makes them awesome, which is brilliant. And it is awesome. And that's my, uh, that's my, that's how I approach it as well. I'm autistic and I'm bisexual and pansexual and I talk about it a lot. And if anyone thinks that makes me less or a bad person, well, tough, I'm yeah. happy with me. My daughters have uh, taken on that attitude really young, so I'm quite worried that they will get bullied. Okay. But the fact that they have that foundation of uh, self-belief and knowing that they're awesome and that you don't all have to be the same and that different is okay is good. But I am really worried that um, they will. They are sensitive and I'm worried they'll get bullied and, and that they will take it really bad. And I want them to survive to adulthood. So if one of my daughters has a bit of a mental health crisis, I feel it with them and I'm absolutely at my wits end. I can't cope with it at all. Understandably, after what you've been through, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Well, let's hope people out there listening, it's such a powerful message to get out there. So how do you keep the memory of Iggy alive? And do you have any family rituals or special ways to remember him? Yeah, there's there's a variety of things. But uh, after the first anniversary of his death, uh, I started to paint rocks. So... They're uh, painted rock. I notice you have some on your doorstep. I do. (laughs) I'd have brought you one if I'd known. Yeah. But uh, I created a Facebook group called Iggy Rocks. Yeah. And basically, um, it's painting rocks that that have things that he loved. So I did Deadpool rock, I did a a racing car rock, and things like that. Some of them are just uh, pride flags or. Affirming messages like different is okay and you matter. And I painted about 50 of those on uh, for the first anniversary of his death. Unfortunately, I couldn't go and hide them for people to find because of the first pandemic lockdown. But I did on his birthday that year. So uh, I... uh, that would have been his 17th birthday, so he would have been driving a car. Yes, yeah. So I hid, uh, I did a really long walk, retraced the steps of a canal walk that Iggy and I had done, and I I hid these painted rocks yeah. on lock gates and various things. He would always cross a lock gate and go and have a look at the other side of the canal, so I did that yeah. as well. So I was doing the things he would have done. I didn't get as far as uh, swinging on the rope swing above the canal because I'm a bit fr- afraid of heights. Aww. But on the second anniversary, uh, my parents and my brother joined us as well. Yeah. I painted a whole batch of Samaritans, painted rocks with the Samaritans phone number on the back. Oh, what a fab idea. My mum did this, uh, I think it was 100,000 steps for the Samaritans or yeah. something like that, that month. And it just coincided nicely with uh, with Autism Awareness Month on the anniversary. And so my family and I went for a walk along the Tardy Big Locks and hid these rocks. Yeah, I think that's such a lovely thing to do. I also paint rocks. <laughs> and um, every year we go down to Linton and Lynmouth and I place a rock there because it's a special place. Oh, when the children were small, we used to always have an annual sort of bucket and spade holiday down in North Devon. And they used to love walking up the river on the rocks. And it was just a really special place. So we do that every year. 
And um, I just find it really therapeutic as well. And I'm not artistic, but I can paint rocks. Yeah. yeah. I can just look at a picture find inspiration from Pinterest and think oh well I'll just copy that and so yeah I, I think it's a lovely thing the to simple do. rocks are really effective yeah, yeah. just a simple rainbow or something you don't even need to know how to drive a paintbrush because you can buy Posca paint pens or metallic markers yes I've got a collection so of those easy. anyone could do it it's amazing isn't it yeah people say oh my gosh you're really clever look at that and I think if only they knew I did that with a pen and a really fine tip and because I write yeah. on them as well and so, yeah, I think it's a lovely thing to do. On his birthday, we tend to do a day trip where we do something that he used to enjoy, like going swimming or uh, yeah. trampoline park. And then in the evening, we'll watch a film that he would have enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, we do similar things. <laughs> yeah. And we talk about Matthew all the time. Do you find that you talk about Iggy as we a family? Do, yeah, yeah. yeah. And oh, do you remember when this? Yeah. And, oh, this bench again I had a picnic here and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing absolutely it keeps their memory alive because yes. they're still part of our lives aren't they we, we need to hear their names being spoken yes absolutely so Charlie you've all already told me that you're an atheist and my next question is <laughs> what are your thoughts about the afterlife yeah <laughs> I don't believe in an afterlife as such but people live on in our memories and yeah. and they leave a legacy and in Iggy's case his legacy is uh, my uh, activism and uh, advocacy for the double rainbow yeah. the double rainbow is uh, when people are on both the autistic spectrum and the LGBTQIA spectrum so I'm involved with a charity Autistic Inclusive Meets, they have like a queer corner as such yeah. that, that advocates for um, acceptance and understanding of people that are autistic and LGBT. And in fact, your daughter Piper yeah. contributes to that charity as well. Yeah. So I shouldn't call it a charity because it's actually a non-profit organisation, yeah. although I may well push for applying for charitable status. Yes, go for yeah. it. So. It's a fantastic legacy to be yeah. gay. So as an atheist, this is going to be a weird question. If you could give Iggy a message now, what would you say? Do you know what I sometimes do? His yeah. Twitter account is still live. Yeah. I sometimes DM him. Brilliant. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it might get taken away at some point because I think they do uh, take down the legacy accounts eventually yeah. on social media. Yeah. But yeah, um, I'm still thinking of you. I watched this film I thought you'd like and you'll be proud of your sisters. Yeah. That, I love that. Yeah. And on that note, Charlie, I think that is a perfect way to end our podcast. Charlie, you truly are awesome. Thank you. Thank you and thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, I'd like to share a part of an email that Charlie sent me while we were corresponding to each other about this podcast. I've asked Charlie to record this here separately because I want it to be with her voice. It's a very powerful message. They're her words and I want everybody to hear this. One thing I learned from the survivors of bereavement through suicide support group I attended was that almost every suicide is a bolt from the blue. It doesn't necessarily follow depression or suicidal ideation. From the 20 or so bereaved husbands, wives and parents who shared at that session, only one had been concerned that their loved one was at risk of suicide. I think many are far more spur of the moment. Like a meltdown that you can't de-escalate from by any other means other than finding the exit. A major brain event that overrides any rational thoughts, such as what about the impact of my loved ones that I would leave behind. This is such a powerful message, and I felt with Charlie's permission it needed to be shared. Now, I recently attended a webinar with Cruise Bereavement on understanding bereavement by suicide, it was a very informative and also enlightening experience which helped me to become more grief literate in this area. What I discovered is that people who die by suicide don't choose to die. The pain of their situation or experience is so overwhelming 
They don't see or feel they have an option and no amount of love and support can prevent it because they are battling an invisible illness. Also, most of them are not suicidal. They have suicidal thoughts which are transient. If we can catch them at the right time, we can make a difference. By identifying these moments and intervening, we have the potential to make a a significant impact. But as parents like Charlie know, it's not always possible. If anyone listening to this podcast is having suicidal thoughts, understand that they will pass. They may come and go, but there are options in between your dark thoughts. There are opportunities to get help. Communication is the key. Hopefully this episode will reach the people who need to hear this. I'd also like to add that until 1961, suicide was considered a crime in England and Wales. The term committed suicide originated from the belief as if someone had committed a criminal act. Although we no longer use this terminology... Unfortunately, it still lingers in our language. I do hope this episode educates people on the harmful language surrounding suicide. Let's encourage the use of more compassionate and accurate terminology, such as died by suicide. Let's work together to break down the stigma and support those who are struggling with bereavement by suicide. Thank you, Charlie, for sharing your experience. I'm sure Iggy and your family will be very proud of you. And your story will not only give hope to others that life can go on after such an enormous tragedy, your story will also help people to become more grief literate. I sincerely hope this podcast supports Iggy's legacy, campaigning for neurodiversity and LGBTQIA plus acceptance and inclusion, making the world a better place for future kids on the double rainbow. If you need any further support after listening to this episode, please check out the show notes for all the links. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Gift for Grief. Please feel free to share it with your friends and family and let's encourage others to become more grief literate. If you're struggling with your grief or worried about your mental health, please do speak to your doctor. If you would like to join me on my social media groups, check out the show notes for all the links and I look forward to connecting with you next time. The music on this podcast was written and recorded by Matthew Bates and can be found on his two albums, Fight Back and Kaleidoscope.